following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 7th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see all of you this morning. Again, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege of of leading us this morning in the reading and teaching of God's Word. So as you get yourself settled, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible, your phone, your iPad, whatever you like to use as you engage with God's Word. To go ahead and grab it and make your way to the New Testament book of Galatians. The New Testament book of Galatians. And while you're turning there, I want to share something with you you may or may not be aware of. But did you know that every single week when we gather together as a family, just like we're doing right now, to to celebrate the grace of God and to hear from God in His Word, that over 100 kids, nursery through fourth grade, will gather back in the classes in the hallways back there and be taught the truths of God's Word, really the gospel, from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis all the way through Revelation. Every few years, we take the kids through the entire Bible, teaching them how to understand the message of the gospel from the beginning to the end. You know, that's why when we gather in here, we take our time to take a book of the Bible and go verse by verse and thought by thought because we realize that God's Word is not a collection of of our ideas, but it's His Word. And so we want to take our time not to read into God's Word what we wish was there, but to, to sit and to listen, to allow God to speak to us, to change us, because we believe, and I've read you this quote many times before, but God's Word, working through God's Spirit, is God's primary instrument for growing God's church. His Word, whether you believe it or not, is the most powerful force in the entire universe. Do you know what it's called when the truth of God's Word and its entire redemptive claim on our whole life is finally renewed in someone's heart? Do you know what that's called? Theologians call that reformation. Do you know what it's called when the renewal of human flourishing by the work of the Holy Spirit through an understanding of the gospel begins to be awakened in the heart of someone? Theologians call that revival. See, my prayer and the prayer of the pastors of this church is that as a hundred plus young people who are served by over 70 different men and women in this church every single week, back there in the hallways and in the classrooms. Our our prayer is that they begin to engage with the single most powerful force in the entire universe, that God would do that very thing of beginning the work of reformation and beginning the work of revival right back there in the hallways. It's no small thing that we do back there. And I say this, and I, I try to bring this to your attention because I believe that there are some of you in here that God would use, that God would stir to help see that kind of thing take place in the hearts of our kids and from the hearts of our kids into even our gathering here. See, this is the, the summer season, and I'll be, I'll be straight with you. What happens is as we continue to gather, do you know what keeps happening? A hundred plus kids or more keep coming every single week. Now, your schedules get crazy. You go on vacation. You do all these different things. You don't know what's happening in the next few weeks, so commitment phobia sets in. But you know what? A hundred plus kids come, and we're committed to encouraging them and equipping them with an understanding of the gospel through God's Word because we believe it is the most powerful force in the entire universe. And so as the summer sets in and we continue to gather 
I wonder who in here God might be stirring to use to help us through the summer season and trust the message of the gospel to our kids. As we gather, might God be using you this summer to help some of our children back there understand the beauty and the glory of God in the face of His Son, praying along with us that God would give them eyes to see and and ears to hear. If you would be willing to help us through the summer season do that, I want to encourage you to to get a hold of Ryan Burns, get a hold of Naomi Moon. Is Naomi in here? I saw her floating through in here earlier. Naomi's over here. Get a hold of Ryan Burns or Naomi Moon and let them know. We believe that God's Spirit working through God's Word is His primary and chief instrument for the transformation of His people, for the building of His church, for reformation and for revival. And we want nothing less for our kids than that. I want nothing less for us than those very things. Reformation, a renewal of God's call on our life, revival, an awakening of an insatiable hunger in the gospel that comes by the work of His Spirit. At the heart of both of those things are the truths of God's Word. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'm not just giving a public service announcement. I don't know if you know this or not, But the book of Galatians in particular, amongst all the letters that Paul wrote to the churches that we have in the New Testament, the book of Galatians has played a unique role in the history of the church when it comes to what we're talking about with Reformation and revival. You may, you may not know that in 1517, a monk named Martin Luther ignited a protest that would change the landscape of human civilization, and you and I know it as the Protestant Reformation. Now, some of you did math right there, 1517, 2017. You can figure out that this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And one church historian writing about what was going on at that particular time had this to say. He said, Martin Luther began the Reformation with the writing of a commentary on the book of Galatians. The key issue that was at his heart, the key issue behind his nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church was this, how are our sins forgiven? And this historian goes on to say that it was out of the writing of a commentary on the book of Galatians that Luther was moved to the concept of grace and faith as opposed to work. And that resulted in him blasting out of the Roman Catholic Church and establishing the protest that we would know as the Reformation. In his own writing about the book of Galatians, and we're going to lean into that a lot through this series, in his own writing about the book of Galatians, Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is indeed my epistle. To it I am wed, as it were the two of us in wedlock. God's Word, together with God's Spirit, is indeed the most powerful force in all the universe. It is the seed of real reformation in the lives of God's people. But not just that. A couple hundred years later, in the late 1730s, there was a small group of believers who would gather together to encourage one another in God's Word. And out of this small group of believers, by the work of God's Spirit, hundreds of thousands of people would meet Jesus. Scores of new churches would be planted. It's not unfair to say that our own spiritual lineage could be traced back to what happened amongst this small group of people. And in one particular evening, as this small group of men gathered together to encourage one another in God's Word, one of them named William Holland brought a particular work that he thought would be encouraging to the group. And in his journal, William Holland records this about this night. He says, as Mr. Charles Wesley began to read aloud, 
At a certain point, there came such a power over me as I could not well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought that I saw my Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. And when afterwards I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground that I trod upon. The next night, and every single night from that day forward, William Holland took what he had heard read out loud that he brought to that group that night and went house to house visiting friends and visiting family and in his journal saying he would knock on the door and say, let me read this to you. From that small group and what began that evening came the revival that you and I know as the Great Awakening. Do you know what it was they read that night? Luther's preface to the book of Galatians. Reformation, revival, God's Word working through God's Spirit is God's primary instrument for the transformation of His church. Galatians in the hands of an almighty creator is an explosive thing. And we're going to begin it together this morning. So if you've got your Bibles... Galatians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as we begin to look at God's Word. Father, we thank You this morning for the rich privilege that we have to to be here together, to open up Your Word so freely and so easily. And we ask that You would do the hard work of bringing our hearts and our minds to a place of surrender, giving us ears to hear Your voice this morning giving us eyes to see your glory and the beauty of your Son this morning. We want nothing less than the miracle of your Spirit at work in us. We want reformation. We want revival. We want it for your glory. And we want it for our good. And so we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Why? Why would you and I now in 2017 want or feel like we would even need something like reformation or something like revival. Well, I read something this past week that helped me with that, and it was in John Stott's book called Confess Your Sins. Some of you might be familiar with that book. But in his book, Confess Your Sins, John Stott quotes the head of an English mental hospital back in the early 1970s, and he said this. This is what this doctor said. I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could only be assured of forgiveness. I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could only be assured of forgiveness. The simple knowledge of forgiveness isn't enough. What this doctor is getting after is an experience of actually feeling forgiven. Not just knowing that forgiveness is possible, Not just hearing words coming from someone that indeed you are forgiven, but there is a spiritual aspect of knowing what some writers call the miracle of felt forgiveness. 
And if we're honest this morning, as we begin our journey through the book of Galatians, even as followers of Jesus, I think it's fair to say that you and I don't tend to live day in and day out feeling forgiven, do we? We're not that different in some ways than the people that the doctor was talking about. Paul, as he begins this letter, he, he wants to encourage the church. He wants to encourage them in the grace that is theirs, the love that is theirs, the forgiveness that is theirs, the acceptance that is theirs before God, not based on anything that they've done, but solely based on all that God has done for them in His Son. He wants to encourage them in the grace of God and the peace that comes from actually knowing that grace. He's after this idea that this doctor was even talking about, the idea of living knowing that you're forgiven. Paul's great burden for this church was in some sense that they would know the miracle of felt forgiveness. That in Jesus, you're free from everything that could ever come against you. One of my heroes in the ministry is a pastor in Nashville. His name's Ray Ortland. He wrote a fantastic book on the gospel. We, we give it away to, to guests. And in that book on the gospel, Ray Ortland writes, think what God could do with a church. So let's just make it Redemption Hill. Think what God could do with 700 rowdy sinners who feel wildly forgiven by God. Think of the marriages that could be healed, the families that could be reunited, the friends that can be reconciled, the compulsions that can be eased, the anger that can be calmed, the joy, the joy that would erupt. The churches in Galatia, those that Paul was writing this letter to, they had begun to fall prey to a lie, a lie that said simply believing in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, simply believing in the simplicity of the message of the gospel, that grace is yours, that peace with God is yours because of what Jesus has done in your place. Simply believing that is not enough to be assured that God really loves you. No one was telling the churches in Galatia that that information was wrong. Lies were beginning to be sown amongst the church that that wasn't enough to know that you're truly forgiven and made right with God. That situation began to light Paul up. You need to understand, and we'll get to it in the coming weeks, the letter that Paul writes to these churches in Galatia, it's a battle letter. He's got an, a holy, in a sense, righteous anger about him when he's writing this letter because the people that he loves, the people that he had taught, the people that had heard the message of the gospel, that God had opened up their eyes and opened up their ears to hear the good news, were now being lied to. The miracle of knowing that they were indeed forgiven was being compromised the simplicity of the gospel was being distorted. And again, as we just begin to dip our toes into the letter, let's, let's not fall prey to the delusion that this kind of thing doesn't happen to God's people today. A quick trip around any Christian bookstore or around the 
religion section of any major bookstore or just begin to peruse even, even Amazon under the ideas of Christian living and you will find distortions of the simplicity of the gospel available in mass to us today. Yes, God loves you and yes, Jesus died on the cross for you, but you know what? God owes you something still. The message of the prosperity gospel begins to take root and distortions of the simplicity of God's grace begins to be twisted. You owe God something. The poverty gospel. Yes, God has done this for you and now you owe Him something else. There's the gospel of unintended grace that God doesn't now care because of Jesus how you live the life that you live. Nothing really matters anymore. There's the gospel peddled to God's people of the gospel of universalism. Regardless of what you believe and regardless of how you live your life out, God loves you and it will all work out the way He wants in the end. And in the midst of all these distortions and in the midst of all these ideas, you and I live in a time and a day of massive technological advancement, in particular in the realm of of information. There's so much information and so many ideas coming to us every single day. The numbers are staggering when you think about how much information is coming to us that you and I have lost our ability to actually listen, to think, and to discern. And so do you know what happens? Whichever message has the best background picture, whichever message can distill itself down into the fewest number of characters, whichever message seems to have the most winsome infographic around, that's the one we tend to listen to because our ability to actually discern what's coming at us has been lost. And like a ship that's set out to sea with no anchor aboard its craft to steady it when the storms come, you and I get beaten day in and day out in soul by the winds of all these distortions. This is what was happening to the church in Galatia. And Paul's not going to stand for it. God intends for his people to be captivated and anchored by the sheer simplicity of the gospel. That's when the first five verses of this letter, Paul drops gospel anchors for the church. He drops anchors that are meant to go down deep and take hold of something stable. The church is getting tossed to and fro. And in his love for God's people, in his love for his king, Paul is not going to stand for it. And so as he begins the letter and he begins to just introduce himself again to the churches, he gets right into the message that he's going to get to throughout the entire letter itself. He had spent time in the past in Galatia, but as Paul moved on from there, other teachers moved in. And what these teachers wanted to do was to discredit Paul, and in discrediting Paul, they would discredit his message. So what I want you to see, because in chapters 2, in the last half of chapter 1, and basically all of chapter 2, Paul is going to get after this in great detail. So I don't want to spend too much time on it this morning. But what Paul begins as he, to do as he opens up this letter is Paul was not necessarily concerned about his reputation. He wasn't just trying to defend himself. Paul understood that in the attack upon who he was and the message that he preached, the gospel was at stake. The news of God's grace and God's peace was at stake. 
And so straight away, rather than saying, hey, it's good to see you again. It's Paul. You remember me. I've heard of all these great things about you. Paul says, listen, no man called me to this. He doesn't even give those normal salutations that you find in his letters. I've heard what God's doing amongst you. No, Paul says there's something much deeper and much greater at stake here. People have been telling you that I wasn't one of the 12. Therefore, the message that I gave has to be my own invention. I'm making this whole thing up. And now they're bringing you the fullness of the truth. Listen to me. No man gave me this calling. No man gave me this message. I didn't invent this thing. I didn't give myself a title. The resurrected Lord himself appeared to me. The resurrected Lord himself called me and the resurrected Lord himself set me apart. My calling nor my message came from anyone else. See, the issue at stake here at the very beginning that Paul is going to touch on and then begin to argue through more completely is the issue of authority. What I proclaim to you is God's word about his own son. The message of grace and peace, I didn't come up with it. It came straight from God. And in seeking to begin to address the the issues of his authority and the authority of his message, Paul then goes straight into the message that he's going to unpack throughout the entire letter. He launches straight into the gospel. If you've ever wondered how to communicate the gospel in one sentence, it's right here. If you've ever thought it could be done, it's it's right here. Look at this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One sentence, the fullness of the gospel. And for all of you guys who like to sit and, and pick the phrases apart and put it all together, pay attention to how he built this thing. Grace and peace to you. That miracle of knowing that you are indeed made right with God, apart from anything that you could ever do on your own. Grace to you, and at the very end, glory to who? Grace and peace to you, eternal glory to God alone, in between the two, how do they happen? They both happen through the same thing. God is most glorified and you are most satisfied when your life is anchored on the understanding of what he's done for you through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It's the gospel. Paul's going to unpack it for multiple chapters. He's going to introduce it here. The only true subject of all that he's saying right here as you begin to tease it apart is Jesus. Jesus is the only grammatical subject of what Paul's talking about here. He just attaches a bunch of different clauses to Jesus. All the different things that Jesus has done. And as we begin to look at them briefly this morning, let me, let me just encourage you again. I know Rayshon talked about it, but this Friday we are going to have a seminar on how to read the Bible and seeing Jesus in all the Scriptures. There could be no more important thing for you and I to engage in. This Friday, and for those that can't make it this Friday, it's so important. Ted Sin, who's coming in to lead it for us, said he'll do it again on Saturday morning. So it's not part one and part two. It's the same thing. If you can't make it Friday, we're going to do it Saturday. And the whole point is to help us understand how to see Jesus in the fullness of scriptures. And here, right here, the only subject in what Paul is talking about is Jesus. And he just attaches a bunch of different things to him. What is it that Jesus has done? We'll just look at it phrase by phrase this morning. Jesus, he's the one who gave himself for our sins. 
You can just begin to picture this mighty anchor dropping to the bottom of the sea, beginning to catch hold on the bed of the ground below it, stabilizing the soul and the ship being tossed around by these distortions. Jesus is the one who gave Himself for our sins. Theologians call that the great doctrine of atonement. But if you slow down to just think about it for a minute, we don't often talk about it this way, but when you think about the fact that Jesus gave Himself for our sins, what you're confronted with is indeed the most accurate assessment of your personal condition. You needed saving. The gospel becomes such sweet news, such an anchor to the soul, as you and I come face to face with the reality that we needed rescue. In our sin, we were utterly hopeless. And the reality of it is this idea flies in the face of every contemporary message and every contemporary idea of hope. We can't simply educate ourselves out of our own condemnation and judgment that's due to us because of our sin. Think about it this way. Again, take the image of the boat and the sea being tossed around. If you were thrown overboard in that sea, what would you prefer? Someone jumping in and saving you or someone throwing you a book on how to swim? Opening up their iPad to YouTube, showing you a video of how to get out of the water. When we were in Central Asia, we met a, a young man who's now pastoring a fellowship, a, a church in Central Asia that, that meets in, in secret. And, and hearing his story and hearing his journey and what God has done in his life to bring him to this point, the turning point for him was a night when he awoke with night terrors and night sweats, frightened for his life and not knowing why. And as he went back to sleep, he had a dream. And in that dream, he dreamed that he was indeed on the sea. And he was thrown overboard off the edge of a ship into a sea that was pitch black, utter darkness. And he saw himself sinking down. And many of you have probably had a nightmare where you felt like you were a couple inches below the surface and couldn't get back up. That's where he was in a pitch black sea. And in the moment he felt like resigning in the middle of his dream and realizing that he was indeed going to die, an arm reached down into that water. And then another arm reached down into that water. And then a body came into that water, a body that wasn't being contaminated by the darkness of this water, and grabbed a hold of him and lifted him up out of the water. And as he was pulled up out of the water, all of the darkness from that sea began to wash off of him. And that person put him in the boat. About two weeks later, he'd come face to face with a missionary that was in his area that would begin to tell him the story of the gospel. And he began to realize who it was indeed that he had met that night in his sleep. He realized what it was to be rescued. He had realized his need. And he indeed come face to face with the one who gave himself for his sins. A drowning person doesn't need a, a book. They need a rescuer. And Paul says, Jesus gave himself up. Literally, on your behalf by becoming your substitute. You realize that no one took Jesus' life away from him? Your need for rescue, your need for redemption, your need for deliverance, no one took Jesus' life from him. He freely gave it up for you. John will remind the church in John 10 that Jesus said, I laid down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I, I lay it down of my own accord. And thinking about this one idea, this one phrase, Luther, in that commentary to the, on the Galatians, he would say that Christ never gave himself up for our righteousness. He gave himself up for our sins because there was no other way of saving us except by a sacrifice for sin. And thinking about what Luther was writing about and what Paul was saying to the church in Galatia, Spurgeon, in writing about this, said that here's the wonder in all of Christ's death, that our sins could not be put away except by his dying in our place. There was no expiation of sin, no cleansing of sin, no washing away the filth and condemnation of sin, and consequently then no deliverance from it except by Christ bearing in our place instead the wrath of God that was due to us. And praise him, Spurgeon said, he did it. He gave himself for us. Why? To deliver us, Paul said, from the present evil age. Now, this is something Paul will say in other letters as well and in different ways. You're probably familiar with how Paul says it to the church in Colossae and Colossians 1, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's Paul saying? What's he mean? What's behind this phrase that the church would hear and understand? Well, obviously, we're not delivered out of the world physically. We're still here. You're still here. You're not an illusion. That would make a fun TV show for a few weeks, right? But you're not an illusion. It's real. You're really here in this world. But what Paul is getting after and what he'll unpack more specifically in the book, chapters 5 and 6, is that you've been delivered by the grace of God from the power of this world. You've been delivered from the ways of this world. No longer is your mind, no longer is your heart, the fullness of your inner being held captive to the ways of this world. No longer are you held captive to the powers and principalities that are at work in this world. You have been set free from this present evil age. See, from the moment that Adam and Eve believed a lie about God and sinned, our, our world has been marked by sin and death and misery and the, the work of demonic powers of lies and darkness. Lies have been afoot. Distortions have been afoot. Betraying and twisting the beauty and the simplicity of the message of the gospel. Lies have been afoot in the world that we live in that ultimately cause you and I to rock by ourselves to sleep in soul, to think that there's really no battle, no battle at work for our hearts and for our desires. One writer, in thinking about what Paul is saying, is, said this, he said, what's so evil about the world that we live in now is that no one actually believes that they're a sinner. You can pick and choose whatever institution you want to go after when you think about what's evil. You can pick and choose whatever idea you want to go after when you think about what's evil, what marks our generation, our world, our day, our time that's antithetical to the Word of God. But ultimately, underneath them all, he says, what makes this present world so evil is that we've all begun to believe that none of us are actually sinners. And we all have our own forms of righteousness and deliverance. But again... My hero, Ray Ortland, thinking about this idea in the book, The Gospel, he says, you and I, we have something else to look forward to. 
There's a day when Jesus will return in glory, and the kingdom that He began some 2,000 years ago when He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that He proved the urgency of in His preaching and by His miracles, realize His miracles weren't stunts. He healed the sick and drove out demons and walked on water because these events were not simply supernatural oddities in a natural world. These events were the only truly natural and normal and human realities in a broken and dying world. And His resurrection was a preview of what was to come. And He's coming again to restore all things. So, when Paul tells the church that Jesus gave Himself on a cross to deliver us from the present evil age, what he's saying is that Jesus has relocated us inside the massive miracle that God has been accomplishing all along. He died in your place for your sins to deliver you and set you free. And what he has done, Paul said, was according to the will of our God and Father. All of that. Jesus is coming and living the life that you and I were created by God to live, dying in our place, the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. God receiving that, receiving His sacrifice in our place and vindicating His life and His sacrifice by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand. Grace and peace to you through faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone was all, Paul said, according to the will of purpose, plan of God the Father. Do you see where your salvation originates? Do you hear what Paul's saying? Your deliverance, your rescue, the miracle of of felt forgiveness, grace and peace to you, living in an encompassing miracle that God has begun in restoring all things. Reformation, revival, eruption of real joy. Do you hear where it comes from? It comes from the purpose and will and plan of God. Jesus did not come and die on the cross in your place so that God would love you. You've got to hear what Paul's saying. Jesus came and died in your place because God loves you. The whole thing originated from the purpose and plan of God. What that means is that your salvation, your rescue, your deliverance, the grace, the peace, the hope, all of it is due to nothing but the grace of God alone. It's all grace. You couldn't do anything to make it happen, and you couldn't do anything to earn it. The only reason that God would come after you and I, that He would rescue you and I, that He would open up the eyes of our heart, give us ears to hear His Word, the only reason He would do it is because of His grace. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. So it makes perfect sense when Paul is just trying to begin this letter and he's going to unpack all of this in greater detail on and on that he begins to pour out just a hope in the gospel. But he would say at the end, well, to whom be glory forever and ever. I mean, to God alone be glory forever and ever because glory in our salvation belongs to no one else. It originated in His heart and in His mind. It was accomplished through His Son, 
It's been applied to us by His Spirit. The grace and peace that is ours, that miracle of living, knowing that you are indeed forgiven by God and that nothing then can stand against you and before you. It comes from no one but God alone. He's the only one that deserves the glory. So listen, as you think about what Paul is saying, as you give yourself just a moment of even reflection this week together with friends and with family, as you face the very temptation and distortions and struggles and circumstances that are sure to come to you at some point this week, let me encourage you, friends, go back and listen to what Paul says and don't give a moment's thought to doubting your salvation when it was God's will to save you. Don't give a moment's thought this week to the doubt of your salvation knowing that it was God's will for you to be saved. Why does Jesus give Himself in your place for your sins? Because it was the will and purpose of God. Not because you are particularly worthy, not because you're particularly great, but because He alone is able to save. Because He alone is able to rescue. Why? So that in all things, He would be glorified. And do you know what that does? Do you know what it does when you begin, the penny continues to drop today and tomorrow, that all of this was born out of the heart and the intention of God? that it was His will for you to be saved, it was His will for His Son to die in your place, when you begin to get that, do you know what it does? It frees you up from the tremendous burden that rests on all of us in the time in which we live to have to be great. I have felt that for so many years. This nagging burden to have to be great. Not just in little things, but in all things. I've got to be great. I've got to be able to do this, and I've got to be able to do this, and consistency has to get here. When you realize, and the Spirit of God continues to work in your heart, and you capture, you're captured by the reality that your salvation and your deliverance was due to nothing but the grace and mercy of God from the will and purpose of God from before time began, it frees you up from the incredible burden of feeling like you have to be great, and it allows you then to roll up all of that greatness and all of that desire to the one who truly deserves to be glorified. Oh, it's freeing for these anchors to begin to take root. And as you sit here this morning, regardless of how many times you prayed this week, how much of the Bible you studied, how consistent you were or weren't with CBR, how many people you witnessed to this week, how many people you, you shared the gospel with. Regardless of what you've done this week, based on the work of Christ on the cross, according to the will and purpose of God the Father, you're accepted before Him in Jesus. regardless of how many times you did whatever you think you had to do this week, 
regardless of how many ways you fell short of that sense of perfection and greatness that you think then stirs God's heart to love you more, regardless of how much or how little you did of any of those things this week, because of who Jesus is and what he did in your place on the cross, by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, you stand accepted before God in his eyes. That was his purpose before time began. Grace and peace to you. You're free. You've been delivered from the guilt of your imperfection and sin. See, that's what the people will begin to hear. As Paul would tell the Romans, the same thing, because of Christ who gave himself up for you, there's now no condemnation for those who are in him. He'll tell the church in Rome, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're free because he gave himself up for you according to the will of God your Father. Grace and peace to you. There is really, truly no understanding in the eyes and mind of Paul of what you and I would call a defeated Christianity. There's nothing that can stand against you before God because you're hidden in his Son. Every single moment of every single day, there's grace because of Jesus. Friends, Paul's just dropping a big anchor for the church. They're getting tossed all over the place. The beauty, the simplicity of the gospel, it's meant to captivate them and stir them, set them free. It's being distorted. And because of it, their assurance, their confidence, their joy, it's all being eroded. So as Paul gets started, he's just dropping a big anchor for the soul. Grace and peace. The miracle of felt forgiveness. Real reformation, real revival, all hinge on the good news. That through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These things are yours. Those thoughts became anchors for the Reformation some 500 years ago. The idea that through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, was the anchor of the church. They weren't just slogans. One historian said they were a matter of life and death. Without those things, there is no gospel. Without the gospel, there's no grace, there's no peace. Friends, may our time together, may the weeks that we spend going through this great letter, may they be explosive for your joy. May they be explosive for our confidence. And may they explode in glory the only one truly deserving of it. Friends, let's pray, and then we'll have a chance this morning to respond to God's Word. Father, we thank You that You have given us Your sure, Your abiding Word, that Your Word is indeed the most powerful force in the entire universe, that Your Word, together with Your Spirit, is Your instrument for the transformation of Your people, for real reformation to take root, 
for real revival to be awakened. God, we want nothing less than the miracle of Your Spirit transforming us. Lord, so we ask that You would do what only You can do. Lord, as we would hear Your Word of Your grace and Your peace to us because of Your Son, Lord, that it would take deep root in our heart, that it would be like that anchor that goes deep into our heart that holds us fast in an unsteady and uncertain sea. God, for Your glory, for our joy, would You help us, help us to be delighted in who You are for us in Your Son. We ask this in His name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.